If you don't like what a given group of politicians in Washington are doing, then sure, call them out because you don't like what they're doing. But to call them out because they're old is pointless. You know, Bernie Sanders is old, Donald Trump is old, by most definitions. Hillary Clinton is old, and Nancy Pelosi is old. They are as different from each other as they can be. It's not their age that is the issue here. It's their policies. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode is brought to you by Aeroflow Urology. As a caregiver, do you struggle knowing how to even start getting your loved one qualified for urology products? Aeroflow Urology can help. Visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-2177. Paula Spann has wanted to be a reporter since she was in the fourth grade when she read back-to-back children's biographies of Joseph Pulitzer and investigative reporter Nellie Bly. She embraced that childhood ambition with gusto, spending nearly 20 years at the Washington Post as a New York-based correspondent. Paula was a staff writer on the Washington Post magazine, and she's written for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek, to name just a few. In 2009, she authored the book, When the Time Comes, Families with Aging Parents Share Their Struggles and Solutions. Much of her time these days is spent training the next generation of journalists as a professor at Columbia University. Paula also writes a popular column for the New York Times titled The New Old Age, which explores aging and caregiving from a variety of perspectives and highlights the intergenerational challenge we face caring for adults over age 80, the fastest growing segment of the population. Paula Spann joins us today to talk about her work. Paula, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Well, hi. Glad to be with you all. So I understand you grew up in New Jersey. I wondered if you could talk a bit about your childhood and your parents. I got the feeling that you were pretty close to them. I grew up in New Jersey, and somehow here I am again still living in New Jersey. And in the, mid- in the middle, I moved up lots of other places, but uh, maybe you can go home again. Were you aware that you might have to care for your parents at some point? I was aware, because I had partly because I had started writing about these things uh, while they were still in reasonably good health. And also because, don't you find that there's this generational change somewhere in your 50s or so, all the people that you bump into that, you know, that live in your town, you run into them at the supermarket or something, the people that you used to talk to about your kids, about soccer or colleges or things like that, suddenly everyone was talking about their parents. Hi, how are you? My mother's sick. My dad's in the hospital. My dad had a stroke. My mom needs assisted living. And even if you were preparing to ignore this, at some point, everyone around you was dealing and you think, oh, this is coming for me too. Mm -hmm. So as it happened, the town I grew up in, this little factory town in southern New Jersey, the kind of place that Bruce Springsteen writes songs about, uh, and also the kind of place that you need to leave, was where they had lived for years. And um, my parents, I have to say, made it easy for me. And I know that that makes me very lucky. 
First of all, they decided, oh, it's time to sell our house and get rid of all this stuff and move into an apartment. Wow, thank you very much. And then my mom uh, had cancer and had a stroke, and I was living two and a half hours away. I was involved talking to them with their her doctors, and she decided that the prognosis here was not good. And so five or six months before it really was a crisis, she went into hospice care, which is exactly the right thing to do that nobody does. You know, we all wait till the 11th hour. So thank you, Mom, for that. And she died at home in her own bed. I you know, was there for the last couple of weeks. If there is such a thing as a good death, I think she had it. Mm-hmm. And then my dad, who I, we used to, in the Times New Old Age column, I used to call him Mr. Rationality. Because <laughs> my dad, first of all, he had a, 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 an accident with the car. Nobody was hurt. But he said, oh, it's time for me to stop driving. How lucky is that? Thank you, Dad. Wow, that's really unusual. I know. But I think people want to hit me because I know how people struggle with this. But he said, you know, he called me the next day and said, I've been up all night. What if I had hurt somebody? What if I had hit a kid? I, you know, I have to stop. Uh, okay. And we had already talked at great length about he wanted to stay in the apartment for a while, but he thought eventually he would want to go into assisted living. Um, and so then the question was, do you want to stay down there in South Jersey or come up here closer to me and my sister? So he moved up here into an independent living facility and it was great to have him nearby. I could just, you know, go for lunch on Saturdays and not have to take a whole weekend and try to drive 120 miles and then come back. Mm-hmm. So um, I, we, I think we were close, and I think he adapted well to this later stage of life. He was 88 when he moved in, and when he was 90, um, and he'd been in quite good health, and they were both cognitively okay, which is the, probably the single most difficult thing. Right. So he... Um, he developed severe abdominal pain. We couldn't figure out what it was. We went to the ER just to try to get a scan. It was sort of inconclusive. We were making plans for him to come back to my house and be in hospice care himself when he died, you know, the next day in the hospital. And, you know, my, my mantra, my sister and I, was 90 good years, four bad days. And that's probably the way most of us would choose to take our leave. So I've enormously grateful to them. And I also think that sometimes my readers just want to kick me because they have it so much harder, so much harder. Well, it sounds like your parents had a really good marriage too, which I think really helps. Yeah, they were very tight. It helps. And also, I think they were able to compensate for each other's problems. So my mom stopped driving earlier, but my dad could still drive. But it also means that um, when your spouse of over 50 years dies, you feel so alone. Um, and I think one reason my dad and I got closer was because she was gone and she'd been his love and support for all those years. Well, so how long did your dad live after your mom died? Hmm. It was a while. Um, she died in, uh, I mean, I'm going to have to think about this, but it was, it was a good decade because he was younger than she is. And so she died at 80 and he was probably 76 and then he died at 90. So yeah, he had, an, he had a, a phase of living independently. He's a very gregarious social guy. So for him, when we had that conversation that nobody wants to have, Jana, about what would you want to do if you can't live independently anymore? Um, and I said, you know, we could bring people in to help you. He thought that living in his apartment alone with AIDS would be too isolating and that he wanted to be in a community. 
So I said, okay, well then, you know, assisted living or independent living would probably be better for you. And so we were able to talk through all these things. Plus I had all the paperwork, the power of attorney, the healthcare proxy. We were about as prepared as anybody can be, even though none of us really prepared for this. But we we had done all the things you're supposed to do. And they do, in fact, make it vastly easier than if you don't have that. And then, by the way, I just, you know, I went through this with my sister who died and she was younger than me, um, but, but chronically ill. And so we had our parents' model of how to deal with illness to guide us. And so, you know, she had done all this too. She had a I was her proxy. A cousin was her executor. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we sort of swung into action there too, and it was a different scenario. But you know, we already knew about hospice. Thank God. And she was not able to die in her home. She had to die in a hospital. But in hospice care, they took very good care of her. It was a different scenario. It was an example of how, however much you want it, not everybody can die peacefully at home. Some people need really heavy-duty care and titration of pain meds. But we sort of had a roadmap. So, uh, and now I think that's it, and that's my family. No, there's no one, no one, please, no one else can die. They're all younger. But I, you know, I, I have in some ways walked the walk, but not like some people, you know, and I, my heart goes out to them. Yeah. So I was really interested to read that your book, When the Time Comes, sort of evolved around the same time or dovetailed around the time that things were going on in your own life with respect to your parents. And I understand that for this piece that you wrote for the Washington Post, you visited an assisted living facility in Bethesda, Maryland, which I was really curious to know about because I grew up in Bethesda. I wonder what the name of that assisted living facility was, just out of curiosity. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about the evolution of the book. It was it was one of those Brighton Garden things that, that Marriott used to have, remember? Yes. This was the period when these assisted livings were popping up everywhere, you know, at like inter, intersections on, 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 on interstates, and, and you would drive by them thinking, I wonder what that is. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I did that piece about assisted living for the Post magazine, and this is the kind of piece where you just hang out at the place for months and you get to know people and you follow them along. And so that was interesting. And then for the book, I wanted to find people who were on the cusp of the decision, mm-hmm. you know, the people who needed to do something, but what did they need to do? And then I followed them through the decision-making process and you know, talked to them and their parents and saw how it, how it settled down. So there was a family where the mother moved in with the daughter and her family. And then there was a daughter whose mother wanted to stay in her house in the Bronx with home care, so she was hiring home aides. And the trick there was, could she hire them faster than her mother would fire them? You know, and then we had, there were a couple of people that were moving into assisted living or were thinking about it. One moved and one didn't. Then there were a couple of people that moved into a nursing home in Trenton, New Jersey. The assisted living was in Boston area. Mm-hmm. And then I had a couple of people who were using a hospice down in Baltimore. And these people were extraordinarily generous with their time. You, you, know, you, you can't help seeing very intimate things when you are spending month after month with a family like this. And their hope was knowing how many millions of Americans were going to be going through this. Their hope was that through working with me, they could provide some guidance to other people. Hmm. Are you still in touch with any of those folks that you wrote about in the book? Um, I have been in touch with some of them. I mean, now it's been 10 years since the book was published, though. Mm-hmm. All of the seniors have died, and I am not in direct touch with any of them anymore, I don't think. But for a long time we did because, you know, the story doesn't end. 
when the reporter goes away. Right. And it it was sort of a, a privilege to be able to witness that. And then I, I wrote about I wrote other things for the post and and then the Times already had this blog called New Old Age. Founded in 2008 by Jane Gross, right? Jane Gross started it. And then after a year, she took a book leave, so I took it over. It's not actually a blog anymore. It's now a column that runs twice a month in print in the Science Times section every other Tuesday and also online at nytimes.com. So New Old Age. Right. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of the New Old Age column. I know that in 2015, it was formally discontinued, and then it kind of iterated in a different way. Yeah. The, the, the Times, like every other newspaper, has been buffeted by the information revolution and has to find how can it continue to exist in a digital age. So for a while, it thought that blogs were going to be the solution. Mm-hmm. And so there were a zillion blogs of every possible kind, including New Old Age. Then after a while, they realized, no, this is not the solution. This is not bring ad dialers, and it takes a lot of time and money. So they killed all the blogs, but New Old Age turned into a column instead. Now, of course, the Times thinks that what's going to save journalism is either virtual reality or podcasts. And I don't know. I give them credit for trying everything, but I am happy that New Old Age continues to exist, and I've been writing it now for going on 10 years, because even though other parts of the paper write about Medicare policy or write about aging, but this is the only dedicated real estate at the New York Times that talks about aging issues and caregiving. And I'm I'm glad that the powers that be thought it was important enough to continue. Mm-hmm. So let's talk for a few minutes about aging in place, who it's right for, who it's not right for. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I I think we should caution listeners at the outset that there are no rules for any of this. Mm -hmm. It's part of what makes it so hard. It's so individual to the family, to the elder, what the condition is, what the finances are, where you are. But in general, I think aging in place is what everybody tells the pollsters that they want to do. AARP and other places do these surveys and they ask people. People don't want to move. Why would you want to move? They want to stay in their homes as long as they can. And it sounds great. And of course, there are ways that you can make that happen. You can adapt the house itself physically. So you want to stay in this house, mom? Then we have to get a stair glide or chair glide to get you upstairs because you are a fall risk and you're balance isn't great and we don't want you falling down the stairs. Or you want to stay, then we need to have a couple of people come in a couple times a week to help you with this or that because you don't want to be going down the stairs to do the laundry in the basement. Or you're not driving and we need people to drive you around and do your errands. So if you want to stay in place, one way to make that happen is to make changes in the house itself or to make changes in the availability of help, if you can afford that. Or if you're a Medicaid patient and you qualify, that is one thing that Medicaid will pay for. But I think we can overemphasize this idea of aging in place. First of all, it's just not possible for everyone. When people begin to have a lot of chronic health problems, um, a lot of disabilities, then hiring enough help to keep that person or that couple in a house will be so expensive that very few people can really afford it. Or they're going to have to be in your house or you're going to have to be in their house providing round-the-clock care, and that is very debilitating for the caregiver. Really, nobody can be on duty 24 hours a day. And most people who are caregivers for the elders are also working. So I think there are a lot of people for whom aging in place is going to be 
prohibitively expensive or too difficult to arrange. But the other thing is that aging in place, if it means that you are in the community where you have connections and you're able to see friends and participate in activities and feel like you are at home, that's great. If aging in place means you are in your house, you don't see anybody except maybe the mailman or the person who delivers meals on wheels, your world has shrunk to a recliner, a TV, and the path to the bedroom, this is not a healthy existence for most people. Social isolation has real health impact. It leads to depression. It leads to people being physically inactive. So if aging in place just means that you are cut off, but you're still in your house, I don't think that's better than trying to be in some kind of communities. And also then there's finances because a lot of the alternatives are expensive. Assisted living is expensive. Medicaid doesn't pay for much of it. And of course, Medicare, as people sometimes find when they have to investigate this and they had no clue, Medicare basically pays for no long-term care except after a hospitalization. So a lot of factors go into this, but I do think sometimes people, adult children, caregivers, spouses feel enormous guilt. They feel like they've fundamentally failed if they can't keep a senior in his or her own home. And I wish we could get past that because it is just not possible for everybody. Yeah. And then the other thing is really that, you know, your world is already getting smaller as you're getting older, because let's face it, some of your friends or your your peers are dying off and people may have to move. They've, you know, they fall out of their friendships. But, you know, the name of the game is community. And your world is already getting smaller when you're older for, for various reasons. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and your mobility and your ability to see them and get and get to them, you know, is declining. So yeah, it's real easy. You know, you, these folks who say, and you've probably heard this, I'm not leaving here except in a box. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. In fact, I've probably said that one. <laughs> well, that is not a plan. <laughs> and you might be in that box sooner than you want to be. You know, if, if you if you prioritize this apartment or this house over everything else in your life, and you will make your children crazy. Right. So do you think the landscape of care has changed from our parents' generation to, for instance, the baby boomers' generation? How has it changed? And has it changed for the good? Yeah. You know, I I wish I could say, oh, it's been transformed. But I don't see that. Do you? Um, I think these changes that are coming are incremental, and some of them are good, and some of them are not so good. So it's hard to say how the boomers are aging because the oldest of us you know, are just entering the early 70s. And most people are still in pretty good shape at that point. You know, we ha- the rubber hasn't really met the road yet. So I'm seven, I'll be 70 in the summer. And none of my peers are, some of them are downsizing or they're moving, but they don't need long-term care yet. And um, you know, by long-term care, we mean when you can no longer be completely independent. So it's hard to say. So you see these little shoots, these sort of portents of change. One is these sort of grassroots thing, like these villages mm-hmm. that are these voluntary associations that cover a town or a neighborhood or sometimes even in cities, a, a large apartment building where people are trying to band together, spend a little money and help each other try to age in place. And, you know, everyone loves the idea there will come a time for many of the people who are villagers that they might need more help than a village can provide. Mm-hmm. But as an interim, I think it makes some sense. You see some of these co-housing or shared housing attempts where in, a, in my town, I live in, a, I live in Montclair, New Jersey. You know, it's a pleasant suburban town. There's a lot of big houses 
and a lot of people living alone in them after spouses die and children leave. And there should be a way for people to stay in their home, but to provide housing, affordable housing, for people who need it. And maybe in exchange for, well, for some rent, or maybe in exchange for driving. Or So people are trying different ideas. In some towns, I've heard about things like volunteer job banks, where you, you provide some service for a neighbor, and then you earn a certain number of credits, and then someone else provides a service for you. So there are these kinds of explorations, I would call them, and people are trying this and that. But what we don't see yet is a fundamental change of what happens when you are ill, what happens when you become disabled, what happens when you need help with the activities of daily living, as professionals call them. If you need help taking a shower, your village cannot provide that. That still falls overwhelmingly to families and secondarily for some people to paid help to different kinds of housing like assisted living or nursing homes. Or in some cases, people are able to hire help or rely on social service agencies. But that is where the fundamental issue is. What happens when people can't care for themselves? And because the boomers are so numerous, you know, 78 million people are going to hit that point, And that is a larger group than our society has ever had to deal with. And I don't see a lot of changes there yet. I, do you? No, but I think baby boomers are going to maybe redefined how they want to be cared for in their later years. Maybe they're going to demand things that their parents didn't demand because, you know, let's face it, baby boomers are kind of spoiled and used to kind of getting what they want and fighting for what they want. I mean, that's the generation of Vietnam and protests and all that. So I just think it's going to be really different. It'll be really interesting to see. Well, they are, you know, they are a better educated generation overall. They're more willing to question authority, perhaps more willing to organize politically. But the clock is ticking here. Yeah, for sure. You can't be marching on the state house when you're sick and need help. Yeah, unless you're Jane Fonda. <laughs> yes, that's true. Sorry, I just I just saw that HBO documentary on her. That's true. Let let us. She's not sick and she does not need help, but she is eighty or so. So um, right. Yeah. So no, no, you're right. I don't want to generalize, but if we're going to be demanding these changes. We better start doing it fast because the clock is ticking and in five to 10 years, you know, people don't like the phrase silver tsunami because it makes us sound like a threat. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not flattering, but in terms of numbers, numbers of people, even if fewer people need help per population. So for example, the rate of dementia is actually going down in this country and in most um, Western countries. So fewer people per thousand or 100,000 will become demented, and that is a great thing. But when your numbers are so much bigger, your age cohort is so big, there will still be more people with dementia, even if it's a lower rate. So mm -hmm. if we're going to organize, we better get started. So let's shift gears for a moment and uh, talk a little bit about ageism. Its impact, how aging is portrayed in the media, how other forms of prejudice maybe layer onto ageism. How do you define ageism? Yeah, I'm going to go just with the simplest definition, which is making stereotypical assumptions about people based on their age. Because, um, as you point out, there's Jane Fonda, who presumably can bathe herself <laughs> and is working. 
at age 80 and not only looks vital, but is vital. And there are people, especially people with lower income, who are substantially disabled in their 60s and even when they don't particularly look, quote, old, unquote. But to me, this is one of the last acceptable forms of bigotry, I think it's fair to call it, is this ageist assumption. So if you don't like what a given group of politicians in Washington are doing, then sure, call them out because you don't like what they're doing. But to call them out because they're old is pointless. You know, Bernie Sanders is old. Donald Trump is old by most definitions. Hillary Clinton is old and Nancy Pelosi is old. They are as different from each other as they can be. It's not their age that people like or dislike about them. It's their policies or in some cases, the need to have better representation in Washington so that it does look more like the country. So yes, there should be more young people in politics and there should be more people of color in politics, more gay and lesbian people in politics, more Muslim people and Jewish people in politics. It's not their age that is the issue here. And we see constantly these advertising slogans and campaigns that if it was about anything else but age, no one would put this on the air. It's just sort of horrifying. Like there was that ad campaign that maybe people saw about trying to get millennials to vote. Oh, yeah, that was awful. I saw that. And millennials should vote. I am in favor of whatever you have to do to try to get younger people to the polls because older people, in fact, do vote and register in much higher proportions than anyone else. But the idea that the way to get millennials to vote is to show these stereotypical old people saying, I don't remember whose lives matter. Like, what do I care about climate change? I'll be dead. That's just horrifying. And people screamed about it. But, you know, the ad agency that came up with it, they thought they'd done something really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Or I got off a subway, I'm, I'm in the city all the time, and I got off the subway maybe a year ago and saw an ad on the wall about what apparently is some food delivery service. I'd never heard of it, but the ad is a poster that said something about, you know, you might as well be 50, which means you might as well be dead. And it was all about the frustrations of not getting instant food delivery. But anyway, I was just horrified. And I took a photo with my phone and put it on Facebook and Twitter. And the company apologized and withdrew it. So sometimes you do win. Wow, the activists at work. Good for you. Yeah, in a way. There are other people doing this work, like, you know, Ashton Applewhite and a lot of people. Yep, I'm familiar with her work. But, you know, Jana, I do it in my private life, too. You know, in my exercise class where I go every morning because you got to do that. <laughs> and, we're, you know, at the end, we're doing this little, you know, we're kind of lying in our corpse pose and the teacher is sort of invoking something restful. There's an accordion music. On the, so she says, imagine you're floating down the Seine and it's a romantic moonlit night in Paris and you're 30. And afterwards I said, no, you think you can't have a romantic moonlight ride down the Seine in Paris when you're 60 or 70? Stop, just stop. Or people say, I'm so old, you know, or they say, you look so young. And I say, no, (laughs) old is not an insult. Young is not a compliment. If you like the way I look, great. Don't tell me I look young. I look like my age. I'm 70. So, Right. Or as Gloria Steinem said, when someone said to her, oh, you don't look 40. And she said, well, this is what 40 looks like. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you know what? That wasn't completely true. That was also partly what Gloria Steinem looked like. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not everybody 40 looked like her. And not everybody who's 80 looks like Jane Fonda. But can we get over this? You know, it's pointless. We are insulting ourselves 
and we are insulting our children's future selves. We have to get over this idea that there is something shameful about aging. We're just dooming ourselves if we think that. We have to look at ourselves as individuals. And can we be realistic? There are things none of us will like about getting older, like the fact that I can't remember exactly what that ad was like in the subway or, (laughs) you know, lots of things. But there were plenty of things that I didn't like about being in my 20s and 30s too. And yet somehow that is still socially okay. I think we need a realistic idea. Are we all wise? No. Are most of us wiser than we used to be? Well, actually, there is data to show that, yes. Are we all calm and peaceful? No. Do people develop a better skill of emotional regulation with age? Yes, they do. Where are people most anxious? When they're young. Where is the highest suicide rate? If you are a white male, it's when you're old. If you're someone else, it's when you're younger. These are not categories that people just easily fit into. And we do have data on this. And so there are things to like about getting old and things to not like as at every age. But you will rarely hear someone say, we have too many people in their 50s in politics. (laughs) That's for sure. So do you think media feeds ageism or does it cause it or or both? Mm. Well, I think it does, you know, media feeds on it, but I don't think it causes it because I think, you know, some of the most ageist people you will encounter are old people themselves. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'm sure it has to do with fear of our own disability, a fear of our own decline or death. But I mean, how, how many people have heard a parent say, I'm not moving in there. There's all those old people, you know, when you're 85 yourself. You know, we are sometimes our own worst enemies. These social ideas take time to change. I think it is changing. But it requires all of us to say, no, don't talk about me like that. No, I'm not going to talk about myself like that either. Mm-hmm. Coming up after the break... The story behind Paula's column, where she profiles some medical schools that are introducing students to healthy, active elders, and how a classroom of medical students reacted to one older woman's frank talk about her love life. That's after this. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Aeroflow Urology. Are you spending too much time struggling with insurance companies and doctors to get products for your parent, grandparent, or loved one? Aeroflow Urology helps caregivers like you enjoy more and worry less by helping qualify your loved one for incontinence products through insurance. Aeroflow's assigned continence care specialist works directly with the physician, provider, and patient to ensure your loved one finds the best products suited for their unique needs. To start the conversation, visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-2177. So maybe we can segue then to the article that you did for the New York Times, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Titled, Every Older Patient Has a Story. Medical Students Need to Hear It. About how medical students can benefit from hearing the stories of older adults. What inspired you to write this piece? And tell us a little bit about that. Well, one of the nice parts of writing this column over years is that I have regular conversations on the phone or email with a lot of different researchers and geriatricians. And geriatricians are an awesome group. There are not enough of them as these doctors who specialize in aging, like pediatricians specialize in children. But they are very holistic physicians, and they really try to see people not just as a symptom, but as a person who has possibly different 
priorities for his or her life than you do. And so one of these geriatricians that I was talking to, I had gone to talk at Weill Cornell. I was talking to geriatric students about media because one thing that I hope for is that geriatricians and media can work together better when you don't have enough geriatricians, and we don't. We already don't have enough, and we're definitely not going to have enough for the future. And one reason for that is ageism because... But it's also it's because it's low paying, right? It's low paying because all your patients are on Medicare. But it's also your patients will die and you cannot you know, be the heroic doctor who cures them and gives them enough, another 50 years. That's not happening. Yeah, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. But it's, yeah, you're so right. So you have to help them manage their health. You try to keep them going as long as you can. You have to accept that heroic measures are not necessarily in their interest. They don't necessarily want them. And you have to sometimes accompany them through the end of their lives instead of stepping in, ta-da, and watching them walk out of the hospital. So for all those reasons, I was talking to people at Well Cornell, and I talked to Ron Edelman, who was one of the heads of geriatrics, and he told me about this program they had for their incoming medical students. Actually, I think they're second-year students. Every October... They have a session for all of them. It's mandatory. They have a discussion and a little skit. And then they break up into small groups and they actually sit down with an older person, a vibrant older person, and talk to them about what their lives are like and what they need from medicine and what their experience with the medical system has been. Because one consequence of ageism is that we're very age segregated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I teach grad students. I often ask them, aside from your own family members, do you actually know anybody over 70? And often they don't. Now, of course, starting next year, I can say, now you do. You know me. <laughs> but so, you know, these students are in their 20s and some of them have had medical experience with older people, but often the experience that they've had because we train medical students in the hospital, is that they see sick people. They don't see people who are living in the community and going about their lives. So this program, which a number of medical schools now do, is just a way to show them, well, here's what old people look like. They are a big proportion of any doctor's caseload unless you are in pediatrics. The people you see in the hospital, the people you see in your office are going to be disproportionately older people. That's where health problems tend to concentrate. So let's meet some of these people. Let's hear what they need. Let's figure out how to work with them. So I think it's a great idea. And I said, can I come and watch? And they said, sure. So I went. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this 82-year-old Elizabeth Shepard, one of the seniors that was invited to meet with uh, these future doctors at Weill Cornell Medical School's anti-ageism program, which you just mentioned. She was just so fascinating seeming in, in the article. Well, I watched these young people's faces as Elizabeth, who Elizabeth is an actor. She's been an actor all her life. And she's, you know, kind of dramatic, like actors are. And she's had an adventurous life. So someone asks about sexuality, and I, I watch their faces as she said, well, you know, I, I'm not as sexually active as I would like to be right now because my partner, who's, who was much younger than she is, is in Afghanistan doing something. And, and then, you know, they, they kind of, you could sort of see them think, huh. <laughs> and then she said, you know, and then I, I was a lesbian for a while, but then I decided I really preferred men. And you could see them thinking, whoa. And the geriatrician, the faculty geriatrician who was facilitating the session said, well, this is taking an interesting turn. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sexuality is something that I think a young doctor might think does not pertain to people who are over 80. And so learning that, no, 
you really should be aware of this. We're not all celibate. It was probably useful, but that was only part of what they talked about. She also talked about the doctors that she liked and that she didn't like and the feeling that she was beginning to have of being vulnerable. This was a person who'd been bucketing around New York all her life on the subway, on the bus, on the street, and that now she realized that if she fell down a subway, a flight of subway stairs, which for non-New Yorkers is a very unforgiving surface. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it was not that they were learning how to treat a particular condition. It's that they were learning how to encounter their future patients. Mm-hmm. So you referred earlier to uh, the students that you teach at Columbia, and I wondered how your, your reporting on and interest in aging influences your approach to teaching and among your students what the level of interest is in this topic at all, if there is an interest. Um, you know, I think it's, it feels very abstract to them. Sure. Yeah. They're not old. Their parents are not old. I'm much older than most of their parents. They may be are involved with grandparents, but I think you know, they want to write about what seemed to them the hot button issues. They want to write about immigration. They want to write about politics. Mm-hmm. They want to write about LGBT issues. Occasionally, I do come across someone who wants to write about aging, and I'm happy about that. But I don't, I should say that I'm teaching journalism students. Right. They're graduate students at Columbia's journalism school. But I think it feels, it just feels so far away to them that doesn't look to them like the big sexy topic. And yet, in terms of impact on our society and on the world, because this is happening not just in the U.S., but everywhere, this is a truly unprecedented moment. There have never been this many old people in the U.S., or around the world. Every society developed and non-developed is dealing with this. I often hear from immigrants when I write about the sad state of aging services and housing in the U.S., I hear from immigrants in the comments saying, we would never treat people in my country this way. Well, they are perhaps remembering the country they left 30 years ago, but in fact, they are building nursing homes like crazy in China. Hmm, I did not know that. And you know, what, what society supposedly more venerates age than the Chinese? But it's not about respect or lack of respect. It's about an aging population that stresses the ability of a family, especially a one-child family, to provide all the care that is needed. So the issues that we're going through are they might not seem so dramatic because demographic change can kind of slip up on you when you're not noticing. But it is a big challenge. It's as big as any of those others. So I don't think it influences my teaching, but I do sometimes pick up things from them about how families are coping. And Yeah, yeah. So I mean, basically, I'm, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's Interesting to me because the reality is is that millennials make up almost a quarter of the population of caregivers in the United States. So they are a huge cohort of family caregivers. Yeah, I have actually written about younger caregivers because we expect, if you're a spouse, if you're an adult child, we expect that at some point we're going to have to step in and take care of our parents. But you don't expect it to happen when you're 20 or 30, and it really can upend your life. It's always difficult, but it's difficult for them in part because no one around them has a clue. You know, when I talk to my contemporaries or I listen to them about my mother, my aunt, we all understand. If you're 22 or 27 or 32 and you're telling your friends, I can't meet you because I can't leave my mom alone. 
they don't understand at all. Mm -hmm. And they're likely to ask you again the next time when you still can't leave your mom alone and would not occur to them to say, well, why don't we come to you and hang out with you and your mom and we'll bring a bottle of wine and some snacks because they're just not in that frame of mind. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk a little bit about your own experience of aging and what your expectations are versus the reality. How do you foresee your own aging? And what is your preference for aging in place, let's say? What are your plans? Um, Yeah, (laughs) I wish I had a good answer here. Um, I'm still working, and I have been a, a freelance and an adjunct professor for years. I don't have a pension aside from a tiny Washington Post pension and Social Security. So I'm still working. I think it makes sense. I can still do it. I still like it. I still seem to be able to handle it. In fact, I started another column. Generation Grandparent? Generation Grandparent because I wanted to call it the Bubby Diaries. <laughs> but the New York Times said, no one's going to know what that means. I said, okay. Generation grandparent. Because that's the big change in my life is I have one daughter and she has a daughter. So I spend, I'm still working, but I spend every Thursday in Brooklyn. It takes me about an hour and a half to get there on public transportation. Oh, wow. That's uh, a lot of commuting. It is a long day. But I spend every Thursday in Brooklyn taking care of this little girl. And it's one of the enormous joys of my life, even though I also practically want to pass out afterwards. <laughs> And so what's ahead? So far in knocking wood, I'm pretty healthy. I realize that I'm at the point that a lot of people are at where you can wait for something bad to happen or you can start making plans. So I do, for example, have long-term care insurance. Wow, good for you. Which most people don't have. Yep, it's expensive. It is kind of expensive. I have one daughter. I don't want to burden her with this. So at the point at which I need to hire help at home or go into assisted living, there will be some money to help pay for that. I have all my paperwork in place. I have the world's most detailed advanced directive, which basically says no to everything. You know, if I can't do this, if I can't do that, if I can't do this, if I can't do that, don't treat me. Call hospice. So I'm trying to not go through that extended period of disability, which is anybody's right to make a different decision. But this is just me. I would rather not have eight years of disability. I would rather just die. So I've had endless discussions with my daughter about this. She kind of rolls her eyes and says, I know, Mom, do you have to put the advance directive on your refrigerator? And I say, yes. Wow, on your refrigerator. So, so you're looking at that every day. Wow, that's a real reminder of your mortality, huh? Because that's where the EMTs are going to look if someone calls them and says she's on the floor. Help. Well, you're right about that. Well, you know, it's like many things on your refrigerator that you don't look at particularly. But I live alone. And there's a possibility that, you know, even if I just faint or something, I just, well, if I faint, I do want to be revived. (laughs) But if my heart stops or I stop breathing, you know, then I might not want to be. There are fates worse than death. And I, you know, because I talk about this and write about it and think about it, I have strong ideas about what I want. And I have made those known to the people who will make those decisions. And I've written them down and I've had a lawyer draw it up. So I've done that. Um, but the the issue now is, do I stay in this apartment in New Jersey or do I move into Brooklyn? And so I'm thinking about that. Well, you have a little bit of time, right? I have some time, but I am thinking about it. Possibly within a decade, there will be a need for me to be near my daughter, not to help her with her kid, but so that she can help me. 
and it only gets harder to move. So, I mean, I've already done one move. I already sold the house years ago. So that whole, you know, shovel out 20 years worth of possessions in the attic and the basement, I've already done. Wow. So that's good. That's taken care of. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. So I'm in a two-bedroom apartment, but I, I do think about this a lot. I think about whether I want to retire or should. I'm not sure I will be a good retired person. I, I haven't been waiting all my life to finally stop working and paint, you know? <laughs> I haven't been waiting all my life to travel. I like what I do for work. Do I have to stop? Could I cut back and not stop completely? So like everybody's parents, I'm thinking about this. But I, what, the one thing I think I can give myself some credit for is that I do talk about it. I'm not in denial about it. I talk about it with my daughter. I talk about it with my friends. In fact, everybody talks to me about aging, you know, because they know what I do. So, you know, I am the, I am the informal elder care consultant. <laughs> <laughs> To the entire Columbia Journalism School, and in some cases to the New York Times, too. I mean, people that I, whose bylines I know that I have never met call me and say, what do I do about my mother? And Oh, my God, that's so funny. Well, it's hilarious. Well, it's not hilarious, but it is kind of strange. But, of course, the other question is, I, I don't know. Let me just tell you what some of the options are. This idea that there's a solution. But you know what, Jana, if we could talk about this a minute, there are more kinds of help than some people quite realize. I've I've been surprised how many people don't know about this profession that used to be called geriatric care manager. Now it's called, what, aging life specialist or something like that. They've changed their name, but it's it's the same thing. Is that like the same thing as a, a care coordinator? No, it's a little different from a care coordinator because those people work for insurance companies or hospitals or health care providers. But a geriatric care manager works for you. Okay. You, the family, you hire them. They are social workers usually with some additional training and they are in all over the country and you pay them and it's expensive. It's $150 an hour or so, but they can do it a lot in an hour. And they are the people that know what the options are in a particular area. So if you live in Arlington, Virginia, or Salt Lake City, Utah, there or Pittsburgh, there is a geriatric care manager who's been working there for a while. She knows all of the nursing homes. She knows all the home care aides. She can come and assess your parent. It's especially useful if you don't live nearby. She can say, here's some things I think could help. Why don't I call in this occupational therapist if you're mother wants to stay at home, this person can help make her house safer. Why don't we go take a look at this independent living community? I think she might fit in well there. I will go and visit her every month as long as she's fine just to check in, see if I see anything that's worrisome. I'll let you know. I am here in a crisis. If you are vacationing in Italy and she's going to the hospital, I will be there. That feeling people have, especially daughters of, I wish I could clone myself, this is that person. And I have used uh, geriatric care managers for my father and my sister both, and I have been very glad that they existed. I just think they're very pragmatic people, and they can help make something that's not easy and will never be easy. They can help make it easier because there's someone that knows. I don't know what to do about X. Here's who you call. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the problem is, is that so much of this information is decentralized. I mean, I think a lot of people don't even know that every state has an area agency on aging. So, I mean, people just don't know where to turn because it's all, so, it's all spread out all over the place. Yeah. Oftentimes you have to go looking for this information when you're in a crisis. So you're just under so much pressure to find the answers to really important healthcare questions and you just don't know where to turn. The resources are not immediately obvious. 
Yeah, it is. It's very patchwork. There are differences by state. There are differences by city. You know, there are charities in one place or another that you wouldn't necessarily know about. But I like geriatric care managers because their ethics are that they only work for you. So you don't have that fear that you sometimes have. You know, there are these supposed free services on the Internet. Well, nothing is free. And your listeners have probably come across them. So one of them is called A Place for Mom, and there's others. And they will supposedly advise you on which assisted living or nursing home or adult community is good in your area. But they get paid by these places. And when they advise you that a place X is better than place Y, and if your elder does go and live in place X, place X pays the referral service. That is not to say that they are guided only by who pays them, but it makes me feel like you are not only working in my interest, you have other interests. I don't want to do that. I want an independent person that doesn't get paid off by anybody but me. And that's what geriatric care managers are. I see. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the column has changed over the years and maybe talk a little bit about one of your more recent pieces, Older Americans Are Flocking to Medical Marijuana, which I I found really, really interesting. Well, the column has changed a little bit because when it was a blog, it had that feeling of the friend who's up at 3 a.m. when your parent won't sleep. It was very focused on caregivers. But now that it's in the print paper, we've broadened it a little bit. So it's about caregiving still and about aging, but also about the various trends that come up in an older population. So things like job discrimination, things like discrimination against a lesbian couple that wants to move into a a retirement community. We look at various kinds of legal fights about the fact that the FDA is going to start approving over-the-counter hearing aids, things like that. And one thing that came up, and it was an article in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society that prompted this, was the fact that as more and more states are legalizing marijuana for both medical cannabis, but also recreational or adult use cannabis, and my state, New Jersey, is about to join them, that more of and more older people will be turning to this drug. I mean, it is a drug. And even when it's legal and it's regulated, there is a lot we don't know about how it affects particularly older people. So on the one hand, there has been a lot of research, although not as much as there should be because this is a Schedule One drug. It's actually hard to get enough marijuana and get legal authorization to do the research. But uh, one thing it seems to be good for is to help with nausea and vomiting after chemotherapy. Well, a lot of the people undergoing chemotherapy are older. A lot aren't, but cancer rates often go up with age depending on the kind of cancer. So maybe that is something that would be useful to older people. Nerve pain, like after shingles or associated with diabetes. A lot of people who have shingles and diabetes are older. Some of these salves and things that contain cannabis can be helpful to them. But there's a lot we don't know, including how might this interact with the other drugs that you're taking, because most older people are taking a lot of drugs. So I wrote about the trend for older people to use this, and I often like to talk to actual people for this column, and the folks that I was talking to in this case were in California, where one of the legal dispensaries called Bud and Bloom. (laughs) Yeah, I love that name. um, In Orange County, um, was actually sending a little van, a bus, to these senior communities to take them to the dispensary because it you know, was smart business for them. And there were a lot of older people that wanted to get there and didn't want to drive. So the column was about the fact that 
more and more people of all ages think that legalizing marijuana is a smart thing to do, and it is happening, and older people are using it, and the claims for it are sort of outstripping the research. So these doctors who did support, they were uh, researchers at Duke, and they supported medical legalization, but they also were a little worried about their patients because there's not much that they can tell them. They can't say, take this dose for that condition. Mm -hmm. We just don't know enough yet. They can't say, don't use this because you're taking that drug and they'll interact. There's a lot we don't know about that. So they were on the one hand thinking, yes, this could be helpful for our patients. You know, this is a drug that has been shown to have therapeutic value, but there is almost no other drug that the FDA would let on the market, which we knew so little about. So on the one hand, it was a social trend story, and it was also a bit of a caution. And I think one reason there were so many comments is that people who are believers are big believers. And so there were a lot of fights about it. <laughs> I mean, we do moderate all these comments. There's no name calling. We don't let people get off topic. I mean, I moderate a lot of them, and, and some of it is automated, but we keep it civil. But people had very strong opinions about this. That piece got a ton of comments, I, I noticed. And I wonder if you read your comments. Oh, no, I read all of them. Oh, yeah. Usually there's not 500. Usually there's 150 or 200. But it's useful to me to see what people think to see what their experiences are. Sometimes I get ideas for other future columns. Sometimes I see people posting things that I know are mistaken and I can jump in and say, actually, no, that's not true. Or sometimes they point out things to me that I got wrong and then I we, then we correct. So this is modern journalism. You can't get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there some pieces that were more popular than others that you wrote? And were there any surprises for you? Yeah, there are a few. I, I wasn't sure how many people would be outraged about a married couple, two women in St. Louis, who were told that they could not move into the CCRC, Continuing Care Retirement Community, that they had selected and they had made a deposit on because when the administration learned that they were a married couple but that they were a same-sex couple, they said that they were a religious community and that they defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and so they could not enter. So they are suing, claiming sex discrimination. And I thought this was a really interesting point, but I wasn't sure if it would have broad reader interest, but it did. I mean, people were just ticked off on their behalf. It was really interesting. And stories about age discrimination and employment, people respond to a lot. Caregiving columns in general, people respond to. And for some reason, benzodiazepine, huh. a drug that is not recommended for older people and can be very habituating, hard to get off. And every time I write about the risks of benzodiazepines, Every major medical group has said, don't prescribe these for longer than two weeks to older people. It is dangerous. They fall. They have problems. And every time I write about that, where there's some new piece of information, people are just ticked off at me and say, what do you know? I need this to sleep. I'm sick of people telling me I'm going to get dementia because of this drug. Go away and leave me my benzos and shut up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's pretty strong. So I, I don't do this all the time because like, we've been at this rodeo before, but every now and then there's something that you find out about. And it's interesting, this group of older people, which I am part of, on the one hand, we suspect or my readers suspect that we are not getting the care we should be getting from the healthcare system because we're old and they're writing us off. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't tell me not to be getting a colonoscopy if I was 40. Well, that's true, but it's not because we don't like old people. It's because there are higher risks for you at older ages and fewer benefits. Mm -hmm. 
And on the other hand, we also are afraid that we're getting over-treated by healthcare systems and doctors who, my readers think, are just trying to prescribe every test, do every drug, every procedure, because that's how you get paid. And it is how you get paid is for doing things, although that is changing under Obamacare. So on the one hand, readers are suspicious that we're, too much is being done to us that we don't need. And on the other hand, we're suspicious that not enough is being done for us that we do need. <laughs> so yes, this is an outspoken group. Uh, you never have to wonder what they think. They will tell you. Well, I want to let you go. I wondered if you have any last thoughts, anything that we left out that you would like to talk about? You know, I don't actually. I would like people to read the column, New Old Age. It's available on nytimes.com for anybody who wants to read it and chime in. You can comment also. You don't have to be a subscriber. I think you do have to register. And I would like fellow grandparents to uh, read the Generation Grandparent column and chime in there too, because you can also comment on that. It gives you a feeling of being, it is a kind of a community. It is a kind of an online community of people who are sharing their views, and I think that's a really healthy thing. We've been speaking with veteran journalist Paula Spann, author of When the Time Comes, Families with Aging Parents Share Their Struggles and Solutions. Paula writes the new old age column for the New York Times. She teaches at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She was named the Distinguished Teacher of the Year Award in 2009. And she speaks to audiences around the country on various aspects of caregiving for our aging population. We'll have links on the HWISE website to the articles mentioned in this episode, so be sure to check that out. Paula, thank you so much for being on the show and for keeping caregiving and aging issues in the media spotlight with your informative and truly compelling writing. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jana. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm on Twitter at Jana Panaritis. And as always, you can leave comments on the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. Or you can let me know what you think about the show, ask questions, and even suggest storylines by sending an email to Jana at AgeWise dot com. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>